Well, welcome to Grace Fellowship and chance to worship this morning. Um, I guess we'll start out with those children up through fifth grade whose parents think this is a good idea. You can be excused for children's church. That cut things down considerably. Well, no switch this morning, and you'll get the last week's bait, hook, line, and sinker. As a, as a fisherman, I appreciate the new title. But, uh, and like me, I hope you're anticipating our new series in the book of Colossians with bated breath. Shouldn't have got started, huh? So let's start this morning by looking at the, we're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day that you heard it and understood understood the grace of God in truth, just you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's open in prayer. I thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to worship freely this morning. I thank you that we have the chance to dig into another one of Paul's letters. And I ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to see how we fit in. Jealous in our eyes to understand what was going on with Paul there in prison, writing to people that he'd never really met, probably. Help us to understand, Father, how we can offer thanksgiving, how we can offer prayer for individuals as well. Help us to understand the pattern that he uses here and how to apply it in our lives. Thank you for doing these things for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And just kind of to begin with, uh, last Sunday evening, our resident theologian, Randy Reed, uh, presented a, a great study on the background of Colossians. So, and it's been preserved on our YouTube channel uh, for your edification. You can find that link at prosperegrace.org. Because that's available, I won't have to go into a lot of detail on matters that he already covered. So if you want to find out the details and some of the issues that might crop up in the book of Colossians, you'll have to check that out. Because I have to confess right up front that I haven't spent a lot of time in the past interacting with the book of Colossians. There were so many parallels with the epistle to the Ephesians I concentrate on that rather than looking at this book, which seems just kind of an amplified version of Ephesians. 
However, in the last few weeks, I have come to see the error of my ways. <laughs> the Apostle Paul wrote two letters that have been preserved in our New Testament to churches he did not plant, Romans and Colossians. And when he finally did get to visit Rome, and that's the place where he writes this letter to the church at Colossae. This is one of Paul's prison epistles, written most probably while he was a prisoner in Rome in about 60 to 62 A.D. Some dispute that, so you need to check Randy's presentation for the details. But as far as we know, he never really visited this small city of Colossae. But the important thing is, regardless of when it was written, it's the message of the letter itself. It was written to a church located in what we now call Turkey, in the Roman province of Asia, about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and a thousand miles from Rome. And near to Colossae were two other large, larger cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, located about 10 miles apart in the Lycus River, kind of like the tri-cities of Anatolia, as it were. Now of these three, Colossae was the smallest, and it was probably the least important at the time that Paul's writing this letter. It had been a major city in the past, but the Romans changed the route of the main trade route, you know, the interstate, and bypassed Colossae. So Laodicea became the prominent city, and if you look in the book of Revelation, the letters of the seven churches, Colossae doesn't show up, but Laodicea does. So this letter is also connected closely with Paul's letter to Philemon, which we'll look at after we finish Colossians. He was a businessman friend of Paul, and a citizen probably of Colossae as well. This is a picture of the ruin at Colossae. These other cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Ephesus, they've all been excavated. This one has not been excavated. So that's what we see, uh, just, the, just this mound. So as I mentioned, you know, the letter to the Colossians is very similar in teaching to the letter to the Ephesians. And some of you may ask, well, if that's the case, why do we need a letter to the Colossians? The answer is, that's above my pay grade. But Colossians does have a distinctive message and one that's very relevant to us today. It has a clear theme, the complete supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. As John Piper expresses it in his own inimitable fashion, Colossians presents the all-supremacy, the all-sufficiency, the uniqueness and the fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ as the God-man Savior, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and the total solution for man's needs both for time and eternity. I quote it because I couldn't beat it. Remember that we saw back in the book of Philippians, Paul's emphasis on the fact that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing else. So being in Christ is a, really it's a gracious gift from God that really needs nothing else. At the time Paul wrote this letter, there was a serious threat to the church at Colossae. There was this garbled mixture, apparently, of, of religious error arising from both Jewish and pagan sources, and it was threatening the church. I mean, think about it, you know, we too are assaulted from all sides by various kinds of cultists and various philosophies, all of them claiming to have some handle on the truth. So the letter to the Colossians, I think, is very timely. So let's just jump right in with Paul's salutation. Paul starts by introducing himself and greeting his readers in a pattern that we've seen in his other letters. This is very similar to other letters. As we've noted, Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. 
But he had a special commission by the will of God. He actually encountered Jesus personally. He didn't choose the career of being an apostle. But he was selected by Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 9, uh, we read, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So Paul is stressing his apostleship right at the beginning of this letter, I think, because he hasn't personally met these people in Colossae, but he's trying to tell them he still has authority over them. His message to them is not negotiable, because he's speaking really as Christ to them, which is what apostles did, not as the false teachers that they were listening to probably within their midst. But he also says that he wasn't writing alone. He was writing with, he says, with Timothy, our brother. So Paul, we can see right away, understood the importance of partnership when it comes to ministry. Because Timothy was not an apostle, but he was like a son to the apostle Paul, like an adopted son. Timothy was his brother, and he says he's their brother. It's interesting, the church understood itself from very early on as family. And Jesus just loves to break down those natural and man-made barriers that exist between people that Satan likes to build up and divide. Because when we, we share Jesus in common, we really have everything in common. So after having introduced himself, Paul next greets the congregation as the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, you all know the word saints really is not some person with a halo over their head. It really just means holy ones. I mean, you're saints too, set apart for God. And we're not holy by our own efforts to please God. We're transformed into holy people by a holy God. And faithful brothers refers to the fact that even in the midst of this false doctrine that they were swimming in, many of these people were still dependable and faithful to the truth as they've been taught. One thing to notice here, though, is I find fascinating, is that these believers were in Christ, and they were at Colossae. They were in Christ, and living, at least for now, in Colossae. And we're going to see this phrase, in Christ, one of Paul's favorite expressions. We're going to see it a lot of times in this, in this, gospel, or in this letter. It's a key concept in this book. And it's actually a key concept in our lives as well, especially during our present time. The Colossian Christian's identity, he's saying, is in Christ. It's not as Jews. It's not as pagans. It's not as Gentiles. It's not as slaves. It's not as men or women. It's not as rich, poor, or middle class. It's not as married, divorced, or widowed. Or any other kind of a classification their culture might impose to divide and control them. To Jesus... Each human being is either in Adam or in Christ. God classifies people as individuals by how they respond to his gospel, how they respond to the good news of salvation in Christ. And it's binary. Sorry. In Christ means that there's a certainty of a person's final destination in heaven followed by living on the new earth forever. In Adam means that there is certainty that one's final destination is judgment and hell forever. The same is true for us. You are in Christ and at Prosser, or wherever you live. We're called to live out whoever we are in Christ, wherever we live and work. Our identity is in Christ, and not in any of the ways our culture wants to classify us. You're in Christ. That's the classification that counts. That's That's your root identity. And, of course, faithful believers, faithful are also public witnesses. Because we belong to Jesus, we're told, commanded, to call others to believe as well. So we are really 
Citizens of Heaven on assignment in South Central Washington, at least for the time being. Well, Paul continues his greeting by saying, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. That's the only place you're going to get grace and peace. It has to come from God our Father. Only he can do that. And as usual, grace always precedes peace. Grace is God's provision for the Christian life. And peace is how you enjoy those provisions. When we receive grace, we'll experience the peace of God and we'll have the power to be at peace with others. So this greeting of his leads directly to his offering thanksgiving for the Colossians. So look at this next section of verses, verses 3 through 8. We see through it, if you look in the, in, the, in the Greek text, and I'm sure you all do, uh, that it's one long sentence. And it's built around the subject of thanksgiving. It's one long, one on sentence, which Paul just seems to love to do. He's overwhelmed with gratitude, essentially, for three things he mentions here. He's thankful for the Colossians. He's also thankful for the gospel. And he's thankful for Epaphras. So first, look at the fact he's thankful for the Colossians. Because he, Remember, he never visited these people, but he heard of their faith, their love, and their hope from this man Epaphras who had come to visit him, who actually was their founding pastor. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So these three virtues, you know, faith, uh, love, and hope, are linked together here, but they're also linked together in a lot of other passages, 1 Corinthians 13 other places. So we know that it's just not a mere formula. It's not just an afterthought thrown in here for effect. But it does mention things in a different order than it does in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith is mentioned first because it really is a starting point for everything, everything else in the Christian life. They're not commended because they had a certain amount of faith, but because they put their total trust and reliance in Jesus Christ. So this vertical dimension of faith, then, leads to this horizontal element of love. Because of what Jesus has done in their lives, they're able to love, he says, all the saints. So we see, once again, that love is not an abstract principle or a squishy feeling. Love really is a transforming act. Because it's really faith in motion. As you saw back in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So true faith always produces love. Someone exhibits genuine faith in Christ when they actually demonstrate a self-giving love for imperfect Christ followers like the rest of us. It's not always easy to love fellow Christians because they still sin, just like we do, or at least just like I do. As Jesus taught us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus laid down his life for us so that he gave us the ability to put the interests and needs of others ahead of our own. How are you doing? Good. Good. It went up on me. So our our shared faith, he says, and and mutual love result then in our common, he says, hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So faith and love spring from hope. Hope is like the root, faith is like the plant, and love is the fruit. Because God has laid up hope for us in heaven, 
we can have full confidence in our faith and, and express our love without holding back. We know our future. We don't have to worry about what could happen to me in the, in the present. We don't have to vaguely wish for something better to come when we already have complete confidence in the reality of heaven. After all, why have faith in Christ if there's no hope for a glorious future? Maybe a dismal existence otherwise, as Paul says in you know, 1 Corinthians 15. Why love others if it doesn't matter in the end anyway? Well, hope then makes all the difference because we have a confident expectation that everything God says in his word is true today or it's going to come true in the future. Hope is stored up, he says, like a, like a treasure. God guarantees our salvation in eternity and that grounds our hope in the grip of his grace, not my ability to hang on. So we see that Paul is thankful then for the faith, hope, and uh, love and hope of the Colossians. Then he says he's also grateful for the gospel itself, the transforming mechanism that God uses. He says, as you have already heard, about, uh, you already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in truth. So he calls the gospel the word of truth. And Dorothy Sayers, I don't know if you ever heard, she's a Christian philosopher, once wrote, the test of any religion is not whether it pleases us or is comfortable, but whether it's true. Does it accord with reality? That's what truth really is. Does it do what it says it will do? That's the test. Well, the great thing about the gospel of Christ is that it is true. It reflects true spiritual reality. It does deliver people. When you lack hope, feel defeated, cast down, or betrayed, Jesus stands there, available to you. He says, that's the word of the gospel. But the word of the gospel, the word of God, is not just for people outside of Christ. It's not a once and for all, receive the gospel and that's it. He intends that the gospel be a living part of our lives, available to us throughout our life. Because Jesus was going to go with you and you've got to face that neighbor who's having difficulties. He offers his love and his strength when you're tempted to maybe wrongful sexual activity or, or not being truthful or, or blasting that cretin who posted on social media. He empowers you at times of pressure and stress. And he offers forgiveness and restoration if there's any failure to follow his lead. And further, Paul says the gospel is powerful everywhere in the world. It's not limited in place or time. The Christians in Colossae are part of a worldwide movement of God's spirit that's still going on today. So they're involved in something a whole lot larger than it is their local area. Which is going to help them to understand why the local homegrown wrong teaching they're going to see in chapter 2 is so misguided and dangerous. There's a bigger picture here than just what's happening in your little church. Because God's plan for reaching the world, for Christ, operates everywhere through the church, which is a mystery that Paul wrote about in Ephesians. Because they're in Christ, they are part of God's plan to reach the entire world, not just the Lycus Valley and not just our little town. And that's kind of why we at, like, at Grace Fellowship support mission enterprises locally and around the world. Because our support 
helps us remember that we're part of a global enterprise. It's not just us here, we're part of something that's much bigger than that. Whether the people we support are in Africa, Thailand, Nicaragua, Japan, Palo Alto, Elma or Grandview, Prosser, we're part of a worldwide undertaking empowered by God, and we're a little piece of that. But we are a piece of it. The third area where Paul's thankful is this individual Epaphras. Because he's the one who had been the one to share the life-changing message of grace with these people in Colossae. He says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras, he says, is faith, love, and hope in action. He illustrates the good news of the gospel, a grace that has to be proclaimed. Remember, when we look at the book of Ephesus, how Paul had spent three years in evangelizing and building disciples in Ephesus at the Hall of Tyrannus. So sometime during that time, Epaphras was on a visit to Ephesus, this young man from Colossae, and he evidently heard the gospel from Paul and was converted. But then he actually spent, obviously spent time with Paul, being discipled and trained and prepared to go back and plant a church in his hometown at Colossae. God doesn't always need an apostle. He doesn't always need a full-time work, Christian worker to start a church. God took one man, trained by Paul, and sent him out to reach and build up others in Christ in at least three cities out in the Lycus Valley, his home area. And several years after the church was established then, around A.D. 61, 62, something like that, Epaphras traveled to Rome to visit Paul when Paul was under house arrest. And he brought good news concerning the people in Colossae, what was going on in the church, but it appears his primary message for visiting Paul was to seek aid against certain false teachings that were attempting to eat their way into the, into the Colossian church. So he had a twofold purpose in coming. But Paul commends the fact that he was a faithful minister. He took the message that he was trained to, to teach, and he went back home, and he, he, he preached the message. And a church started, and churches started in other locales, too, because he knew how to actually not just train, but also to train others. You know, Paul to, in Second Timothy, Paul has this message, he says, that to Timothy, to train individuals who will, in, in turn, be faithful in training others, who also will be able to train others also. So Paul recognized that unless, if he was going to be successful as a teacher, as a, a preacher of the gospel, he was not successful until he saw great-grandchildren, which meant that he had taught someone who in turn had taught someone, and that person in turn had taught another. That way he knew that his teaching that first person was successful, and not until then. He wasn't interested in addition. He's interested in multiplication. And that's why he can say that when he, act, when he was in Rome that the gospel has gone over the entire area of Asia, the entire area of Turkey. Why? Paul didn't get to all those places. But he trained a whole lot of people that went into those places. And says the gospel reached that whole area because of training faithful people who in turn trained others as well. Well, Paul now takes his thanksgiving for the Colossians and he links it to a prayer for them, which is kind of, a, kind of an amazing thing. Paul's in Rome. Did I get the right one here? Hmm. 
He's a prisoner in chains and he's unable, unable to travel to Colossae to help them. So there's nothing he can do physically. But spiritually, he really can pray that God will create in their midst a tremendous opportunity to know truth that will actually free them and enable them to be able to withstand this assault, whatever this false teaching looks like. So this is what he's doing. This is what the one thing that he can do. He says he's praying for them. And the striking part of that is the very first sentence. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So this was a continuing prayer. And I've always wondered about this because it always made me feel guilty because I don't pray unceasingly. <laughs> Remember that apart from one or two of them, he didn't know these people personally. And yet he says he prays continually for them. And when you come to statements like that in Scripture, it's really hard to, to figure. How did he do that? I mean, when did he have time? Day and night he's chained to a Roman guard. He never has a moment to himself. Furthermore, when he's awake, his friends are dropping by for counseling and instruction. He even ministered to the Roman guards, you know, we, we saw many of whom were converted, came to Christ, as we saw in the book of Philippians. And he's busy writing letters, too. So when did he have time to pray for the Colossians? How could he do it without ceasing? I think the answer lies in this quote from uh, Dr. Carl Lundquist, who, as it turns out, was the president of the Bethel Seminary when I was a student there in the last century. Um, so Paul, he says, is describing an ongoing life of prayer. He says it refers to quiet, whispered prayers and praises that flow from our hearts all day long. We can use interruptions, people, or events that break in unexpectedly upon our day as calls to specific prayer. We can use your news source or the television set in the same way. As world decision makers are pictured before our eyes, we can breathe a quiet prayer for them by name. We can read newspaper, that shows how old this is, uh, or social media posts. Prayerfully, we can whisper back to God our intercessions for those in need. When someone calls our attention to himself, even in an impolite way, tripping us on the bus, dodging in front of us in traffic, consider that of the four billion at that time, seven now, seven billion persons in the world, God may be calling that particular individual to our attention in order to inspire prayer for him. Have you ever prayed for people who cut in front of you in traffic, asking God to bless them rather than blast them? That's what this is suggesting. Continual prayer he's talking about arises constantly as a reaction to what you're going through and what you're seeing. I think this explains what he's doing or what he's trying to explain here. Because during the day, he would think of the Colossians, how they were doing, what was threatening them, and he would breathe a prayer for them. And I think that's what he means when he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. And we can pray for each other the same way. It's not a case of trying to load guilt upon yourself because you're not on your knees 24 hours a day. That's not the point. The point is that whenever God brings something across your path, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, make it an opportunity for prayer. Bring up that request. It didn't happen by accident if God's sovereign. So if you can't do anything about it personally, you can certainly do something about it in prayer. It's our most powerful tool. So what did Paul pray for? He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the main point of his prayer. Everything else in the passage kind of flows from this. Because the one thing he asks for the Colossians is 
that they might come to understand God's will. He knows they begin to understand the will of God. Everything good that he desires for them will follow. And so the chief aim really of our lives ought to be to know God's will and so to please him as we do it. Because all too often we've been trained to think, especially as we were growing up and trying to figure out what God wants to do with our lives, we think of the will of God as some kind of an itinerary that we're supposed to discover. Where does God want me to go? What does God want me to do? If that's the case, then our prayers become dominated by these kinds of thoughts. What should I do today? Where should I go? Whom should I marry? But God knows us, and he knows that our behavior flows out of who we think we are. Have you ever asked one of your children, who do you think you are anyway? (laughs) We instinctively know that our behavior is a result of who we think we are. Now the glory of the good news is that God has made us into something different than what we once were. Therefore, we need to understand scripture to understand who we are in Christ. He said, and remember, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself, so you no longer live for yourself. Your will, your pleasure, your comfort are no longer primary in your life, but what God calls you to be and what he has made you to be, which flows from the inside out. Keep in mind that forever, we are his. This reality is informed by who we were, We were dead in transgressions and sin, alienated, hostile in mind, foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and destined for wrath. But who we were naturally is eclipsed by who we become in Christ. Remember, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. How does God see us now in Christ? He sees us as his children, swaddled in the everlasting righteousness of his Son. We're new creations. We are his adopted and eternally loved children, co-heirs with his son of all things. Nothing can separate us from his love. We are his. That's who we are in Christ. And as a result, the things that happen in our lives are to flow out of that, not maybe how we used to think we were. And the only way we can really change our way of thinking is to understand from Scripture who we are in Christ. And if we could really grasp that and really hang on to that and really believe it and act it out, our lives would be transformed on a continuing, ongoing basis. Because the more that you understand and believe, actually trust in who you are in Christ, the more your behavior is going to change. And you're going to do the things that Paul talks about in this passage, which I think he puts the knowledge of God's will as primary. So where do we find out God's will? He says, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he mentions at least two things here that enable us to discover what the will of God is. The first is spiritual wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the spirit, not from our own natural mind. In 1 Corinthians, Paul contrasted these two, saying, yet our ministry is not according to the wisdom of man, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that's what we need to discover. What God thinks about life. That's reality. And if you want to be realistic, then you need to read and study your Bible to discover how God looks at things. What is his perspective? Everything else is fantasy. It's like car or beer advertisements on television. 
outrageous, out-of-this-world fantasies to induce you to buy whatever it is. That's the way the world thinks. But if you want to learn real, if you want to really learn real things, realistically, we need to learn spiritual wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. And he says the second thing is necessary to discover the will of God, he says, is understanding. That's the application of wisdom that you're learning as circumstances confront you. Wisdom is a clear vision of what needs to be done. Some of you are struggling with problems you don't know what to do. The first thing we need to do is to understand how God sees your problem and what he says about it in his word. Then there will come as you pray and seek his face a clear understanding then of what needs to be done. What steps to take or what not to take. Comes down to looking at your not looking at your problem from your perspective, but look at your problem from God's perspective. And if you don't think your problem is addressed in the Word, you need to read more. It covers all situations we're going to face, not down to maybe, you know, talking about the internet or something like that. But it will talk about how you function. And so, you get there, whatever you need, wherever you need it, it's in here. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So these are not natural abilities. He says these all come from the Spirit. This is spiritual wisdom. And that should be really good news because they're given by the Spirit. They're available to everybody. It's not dependent upon natural abilities. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So it applies to all of us. So when you open the Bible, we need to pray that God will help you understand who you are in Christ, and how that applies in your particular situation. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I have this little book, this little slip in my Bible to remind me of who I am in Christ. Because I forget. I get bogged down with uh, current events, and I forget the fact that, hey, gee, I really am God's child, even though I might doubt it at times. Uh, what does the slip say? I'll show it to you. Who I am in Christ. And this is, uh, comes from Neil Anderson's book. What's the title? I can't remember. Uh, anyway, he had a, wrote a book about transforming how we think about ourselves because of who God says we are. Uh, and, so, and how to actually use that then to confront situations, maybe things that you consider to be uh, unsolvable. A lot of them are solved if you understood who you were in Christ and you actually believed it and lived it out. So we used to have these... Well, We'll make it available. There's a Xerox machine over here. (laughs) I don't know. I still remember IBM Selectrix, so. (laughs) I remember they came out with mag cards. Oh, this is the cat's meow. Anyway, last century. Well, the second thing, are there, so Paul is asking for spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he knows what's going to happen, he says, if they do that. If they gain the knowledge of his will, he says, we pray this for you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That ought to sound familiar. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Now, that's quite a laundry list, so I broke it down. Uh, I like counting. So I said, I found five things here. 
the first three of which are really activities that we have a choice in, and the last two are the results that grow out of those three. So here's my list. The first thing is, he says, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. When you understand what God, that, that God has made you and what he has made you to be, of course, even though you know you don't deserve it at all, you're going to be con- con- concerned about whether your behavior reflects his beauty and what others will think of your God when they meet you. This is a life worthy of the Lord. It's the very first thing that he says that we're to be concerned about, our impact on others, how our lives are impacting theirs, and what our actions make them think about our God. And the question I always ask myself is, am I being a telescope, magnifying God and God's character to others? Or am I somehow obscuring their ability to see? He says the second activity that will flow from the knowledge of who we are in Christ, he says, is to seek to please him in every way. So the chief aim of every believer ought to be that he's pleasing to God, that he seeks to live in a way that actually delights God, which, believe it or not, is actually possible. Do you believe you can actually delight the sovereign God who inhabits eternity, the high and holy one? You can actually give, cause him delight by doing things that please him? That ought to knock your socks off. Nothing else does. But So what quality of life, really, if you're going to limit it down, maybe just one, there's others too, but what quality of life is pleasing to God? Well, one place we look in the book of Hebrews kind of puts it in the negative, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith, complete trust in him, obviously pleases him. And whenever our Lord commended, remember Jesus, commended anyone for anything, it's because they believe him and they act on what he says. That's what pleases God. Not trusting in God, but actually trusting him. Which leads us to the third activity he's talking about, which is bearing fruit in every good work. The fruit here, I think, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace in our relationships, in our actions towards others. Concern, compassion, encouragement. And help in a time of stress, actually bringing a word of peace into a troubled, hostile atmosphere. And so on the mountain, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I think that's bearing fruit in every good work. He goes on to say that as these begin to take root in our lives, two results are going to follow. Probably others too, but he's mentioning two. The first is given at the end of verse 10. Growing in the knowledge of God. He began by praying for the Colossians that they would come to know God's will. And now he says that as he put these things into practice, they will know God better than they ever did before. Seeking to walk worthy of God and to please him in fruitful activity results in knowing God more and more intimately. That's what Jesus means when he says to the woman at the well, as you remember, I will put in you a well of water springing up into eternal life. It's always there. It's that refreshing quality of new life from knowing God. And 11 and 12 kind of gives us the second result. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Gee, we come all the way back around to verse 3, giving thanks again. This time it's a prayer request. Before he was giving thanks 
Remember for the three things that he saw in, in, the, in the Colossian church. When you think about it, there's, there's always this recurring emphasis in the history of the church, and it's back again, on signs and wonders as the mark of real spiritual power. You've got to be able to command things. You've got to be able to cause things to happen. You've got to be able to speak in unknown languages. You've got, that shows real spiritual power. I think he's saying right here, though, is real true spiritual power is learning how to become patient and long-suffering with joy. That's the hard one. That's difficult. Matter of fact, it's humanly impossible. And he says it's those people who have, who learn how to become patient and become no long-suffering, endurance with joy. He says these are the ones who have touched the artesian springs of true spiritual power. And when you're faced with irritating circumstances or an irritating person, it takes power from outside yourself to remain patient and long-suffering. Because our natural tendency, as you all know, is to get upset or angry or resentful. It takes real power to resist when you feel these emotions rising within you. Now, this word endurance is best translated as stick-to-itiveness. People who have this quality don't quit. They hang in there with their relationships despite the pressures. So endurance is a word that relates to our circumstances. And that second word, translated as patience, is a willingness to wait and not pay back in kind. It has to do with being quick to forgive and refusing to take revenge. If you can do that, you have experienced real power. Well, the closing verses summarize Paul's thoughts and his prayers with three things that we can always be grateful for. I mean, you might in weakness feel like complaining about a few things, but we can always come back to these things that are true of every believer. And I think the more we think about them, the more we're going to understand what it really means to be grateful. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's got three things here to be grateful for. Which is always a good place to start if you're having difficulty. Count your blessings. Here's three of them you can count. First thing he says is for privileges we don't deserve. He says we've been qualified by God, not by ourselves. We've been pre-qualified by God to share in the inheritance of the saints. This is even better than being pre-qualified for a mortgage. Right? This eternal one, it's already paid. But what are these? What are these and what is the part of the inheritance of the saints? Well, a father's love, the Savior's righteousness, the Spirit's presence, a family of brothers and sisters to support us and uphold us, and a very certain destiny after death. Nothing can take those away from you. I mean, if we remember these things, he says, we can remember, we can rejoice in the midst of whatever comes our way. He also says that there are dangers from which we've been delivered. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Have you ever thought about what your life would be like if Jesus hadn't stepped in? It's kind of scary. But he says the Lord Jesus has, re- has taken us and delivered us from the dominion of darkness. From increasing uncertainty about life 
and, and, and even for groping after futile goals, goals that don't get us anywhere with God. He's delivered us from blindness and death. And this is a, a, a direct allusion back to the time of the Exodus, I think. He's delivered us, in our case, from our Egypt of sin, our bondage, and brought us into his promised land of freedom. He taken us from the domain of darkness and moved us into his light. And a third category that we can always be thankful for and can be grateful for is all the pressures that we've been freed from. He says he brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So we've been, we're free from this feeling of, have you ever had this feeling, of being unwanted? One of the most devastating things that any human can experience, I think, the feeling that nobody cares, nobody wants us, nobody loves us. Maybe it's your parents. You always felt that way about them. He says that's forever rendered untrue by the work of Jesus. He has brought us into his kingdom, and together with him, we now share the love of the Father with him. So Paul, just in this introductory section to Colossians, has reminded us of our identity. We are in Christ. You're not white, black, brown. You're not based off of your behaviors. That's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. And that fact, he says, reminds us, enables us to be thankful for people. He says, we've never met personally, but find out about it in prayer letters. Those nuisance letters sometimes you get in the mail. Those prayer letters. To be thankful for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it transforms us. To be thankful for faithful teachers of the word of God, like Epaphras. And that thanksgiving, in Paul's case, which it ought to in our case, I think, as well, leads to prayer for anyone that God places on your heart for whatever reason. Whenever a person's name is brought to your frontal lobe. And it doesn't necessarily have to be because you like the person or because it's something that's important to you. It may be someone who just offended you, cut you off on the freeway. Uh, offended you through some kind of social media interaction. When those people come to mind, the idea that, that Paul is telling us here is to take those people before the Lord. You don't have to make a long prayer. Just ask the Lord to bless and use them. Use them in your life, maybe, if that's the case, and you have a hostile reaction to something. So that Thanksgiving, then, lead us to prayer. And he says we always need to pray for one another, for a deeper knowledge of God and give thanks for his transforming power in their lives. And he says, we'll always be grateful for the privileges we have in Christ. Being rescued from darkness, bringing us into God's forever kingdom, that's real hope. So I hope this helps your life of dependence grow as it shows up in your prayers for others. So let's pray. I thank you, Father, that you have, even though it's just an introductory section, that it has a great challenge, I know for me at least, the necessity to be individuals who are grateful, who are thankful for who we are in Christ, for what you've done for us, for how you continue to work in our lives, sometimes even against our current emotional state. 
Father, please change us. Make us to be like who we are in Christ. We don't need a book on psychology for that. We need to understand your word. We need to understand who we are at the depths of our being, what you say we are, who you say we are. That's truth, not the lies that we tell ourselves or that we read around us. If we believe in Jesus, we are in Christ. We have trust in him. We have a hope for the future, and we have his love to share with others. What an amazing package you've given to us. What an amazing new life. Please help us to use it wisely. In Jesus' name, amen.